What have you been up to today? Oh, um, I just got back to my house in Vermont and just a lot of upkeep. I had to put screens on the vents and the sauna to keep the mice from coming out. And um, Oh, you have a sauna? I do. Wow. How was that for you? Um, how was that? It's awesome. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. What does um, that look like? Is it like a big system? What's going on there? Is it a big... Um, yeah, is it like a yeah, big separate a, room or what? It's a building down by a river. Oh like my a, um, just God. Just like a wood box. That sounds... With a planted roof. That's so funny. I'm going to a cabin um, in northern Michigan in a couple weeks, oh, yeah. and they have a wood a wood-powered sauna. I've never experienced one. That's what it is. That's fan- That's amazing. To, uh, you're going to be converted. It's amazing. <laughs> For sure. Um, are you going to be able to record your side of the audio, or do you just want me to do the whole thing? Either way works for me. Oh, uh, no one told me about me recording it. I can, but it would take me a while. Nah. I have to set up the studio. No um, worries, man. No big deal. I've been, I've been recording already, so it's all good. Great. So... How have you been since we talked? It, a lot's happened in the past couple of years. When was it? Was that? I that think was it was right after hereditary. Yeah, so back in September of eighteen, maybe. Okay. It's been a minute. Yeah. How have I been? Um, <laughs> everything's been great. It's been pretty breakneck. Yeah. Uh, I went straight from, and I don't know if we covered this or we're in the arc of everything we were. I was when we spoke last, but. I went straight from delivering, I think I delivered music because we had, there was there was changes in picture and stuff right up until the very end and I delivered final stems to Hereditary just days before uh, Sundance. And oh, wow. then And then had a day off and then started immediately in on scoring the first. And so those two were back to back I was able to get a little bit of time in after the first to kind of uh, regroup and get a, get some get some work done on some solo stuff and uh, and then yeah then the color started last year in the summer and I went straight from that to a Danish TV show called Deliver Us that I that I did mm-hmm. um, and then straight from that to a show called Barkskins which I just finished and. Uh, now entering into another little area where I'm trying to get some work done for my own uh, for a solo EP and another set, a couple of solo records. Yeah, I was I was curious. It's been a minute since you put out a solo album. I was I was wondering how that fit into your apparently very very busy schedule. <laughs> you yeah, haven't stopped, well, man. I'm making well the, the the next solo record has been written and you know, I've been performing music from it for the past couple years kind of mm-hmm. um and uh the plan was to put it out either you know prob- the plan was to put it out within a year of the of the of the last one which i guess came out in april of 2017 mm-hmm. and there just wasn't any time with the with the scoring to put the kind of time that i that i need to put into a solo record in order for me to be um content with it so yeah. I didn't. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I haven't tracked the whole thing. Some of it is finished, and um, and the rest is getting 
uh, getting there now that I have some time. So I'm I'm loath to actually give dates because I've messed <laughs> it up so bad in the past. But um, but yeah, I, I'm hoping that sometime later this year. But we'll we'll see. It, it, I I do have um, that there's still. It's not that I'm that the coast is entirely clear. Right. <laughs> I'm still working on a lot of things, and Uzumaki is just starting. Um, and so. So yeah, uh, I'm, but but I'm hopeful. For sure. How has that felt not being able to have as much time to work on your solo stuff? Do you still feel like satisfied artistically? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I the thing what I like to make sure is that I don't let things linger for too long. Right. That that I don't. It's because it's not like I don't. It's not like I stop becoming inspired and writing and, and and coming up with new concepts for new stories and, and, and so right now it's just as a backlog mm-hmm. and it's just and and an absolute uh, logjam of one at this point so I keep on developing new things that just have to be backburnered um, and you know until this this one that was slated for several years ago comes uh, comes to fruition but um, I, I'm certainly not upset about anything right now. Mm-hmm. I would not complain about the um, about the busyness and about the kinds of things that I've been busied with. Not at all. Yeah. Um, just you know, happy when I do have some time to devote to um, to alleviating this uh, particular um, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, you did some stuff for Red Dead Redemption, didn't you, also? I did, yeah. That was... How was that? that? Last... What was that? No, not last summer, but the summer before last. It was in and around when I was finishing the first and, and after that. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Those guys are great. And I got to I got to do a combination of things. A lot of it were, was me, you know, them showing me scenes. Yeah. You know, different, um, different gameplay chapters and and I got to start from scratch and just compose for those um, for some scenes and then other things I was adding to existing tracks that were there that you know Woody had started or uh, and then and then other things still uh, actually a lot of things later on in the game were collaborations between Sinyawa and, and, and me yeah. and um which was kind of the most fun. That is so badass, dude. How, how was it facing like a Western kind of vibe? How did that challenge you like with instruments and shit? Um, well, Western sort of vibe, but they, they specifically wanted me to do my thing. They weren't trying right. to get me to do, um, they were trying to get me well, that's cool. to just, just use a spaghetti Western um, mm-hmm. arsenal of instrumentation. I did... I did use a bit of um, of trumpet and French horns and get kind of a cinematic of brass fanfare uh, quality out of some of it, and, and 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 some of it I did play kind of like emulated some of those rolling um, plucked guitar, yeah. uh, aggressive plucked guitar lines on on uh, on different saxophones and. Mm-hmm. and Experimenting with uh, with forced um, forced overdrive and stuff, and uh, but a lot of it was 
was just kind of existing in my wheelhouse, but playing to that to that genre. Yeah. Um, and I've I've done I mean I've done western a bit in in that in that way with um, with a film I did a few years ago called Outlaws and Angels. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and so, but 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 in this case, it really wasn't. I wasn't going whole hog into it because <laughs> it was um, it was still uh, uh, I was still a team player, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's so cool, man. And uh, Uzumaki, I'm like, I saw the trailer, and, and it's so funny. I'm I'm so happy that like Hereditary put you on my radar because now like I don't know. I, I've just been really happy to see you like pop up. Like when I saw. I didn't even see that. Like, I saw that you were announcing that you were doing Color Out of Space, but I saw, I think, Waxwork, if, is that who pressed it? They, like, announced yeah. it, and I saw your name, and I'm like, holy shit! Like, because I remember when Hereditary came out, I was like, I just can't wait to see you do more, like, horror stuff. And I, I was just psyched. And then Uzumaki, I don't even know how I came across the trailer, like, the teaser trailer for that, but it just looks, like, fascinating. And also seeing that you were doing that I was just like oh god that's gonna be like I think it's gonna be really beautiful yeah it's it seems like this kind of stuff that like I used to wake up to when like Adult Swim was on at like 3am and it was just like whoa what is what is going on well I mean the manga is just utterly um utterly eerie just so horrific but also stylistically just gorgeous uh-huh. and so um, I'm very very excited to see what happens with with the uh, with the visuals and and, um, and I'm already developing music for it and so yeah it's yeah when uh, is that I, when is that premiere uh, I don't think that they've set an actual date yet uh-huh so I'm, I'm just like that. I'm fiending for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> How has it been jumping between like all these genres? Like, was animation did that feel different, or were you like, how do you hone into the feeling of it, regardless of whether it's animated or if it's an anime or what the vibe is? Cause, I mean, it still seems like a horror a little bit, and I saw that it was ironically inspired by H.P. Lovecraft too. <laughs> but it is, it's very much a, a horror manga, uh, mm-hmm. famous one, and it. Um, for for me, I honestly, really, I, I I try to stay out of the genre games, you know. I, yeah, because really yeah, yeah. I really don't um don't busy myself with thinking about um thinking about myself as a, a genre player or mm-hmm. composer. Uh, I don't think of of that of my consumption of film or music in, in that regard mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I there's any one thing that I'm more or less into I I simply I just like stories and so for, uh, so for, for me it's, 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 it's like is there a compelling narrative is this is there something is there something novel about 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 the about the storytelling here is it something that has been done to death or is there something here that that is uh, unique and maybe offers up a, an opportunity to to play to it in a way that that, that yeah that does something that that hasn't been mm-hmm. done in quite this fashion before and so for something like hereditary clearly that was i mean that was just 
Ari had spoken to me years before and and right, right. And, um, and showed me the, the the script, so that was a no-brainer based on you know the script was read down really perfectly, super tight, and and it was exactly what it was. And her uh, color out of space was one of those things that you know it's just it's a it's another no-brainer. The the, mm-hmm. the combination of SpectreVision coming back after Mandy with Nick Cage yeah. and um, and and bringing. Richard giving him the opportunity to come out of his you know long hiatus from the industry and and come back with a story that was you know very very near and dear to him from his childhood uh, it was all it, it, it was all of those things that I that I like it's, mm-hmm. um, you know interesting um, and compelling uh, subject matter and storytelling really really talented people um, who are really passionate about the story that they're telling and an opportunity to do something that hasn't been done uh, quite in that in that manner before. For sure, for sure. Did you um, did you think on Johan's Mandy score at all? Like, did that ever come across your mind? Like, I I know Color Out of Space and Mandy are different films, but there is obviously like a connection there. Did you ever think on that score and that feeling when you were doing Color Out of Space? No, uh, for me, they they couldn't be anywhere any more different. Really, in terms of the films, I mean, they're just they don't they're nothing they're nothing alike mm-hmm. um and uh and so no the the, the approach to it had the music no, there's no there was no similarities gotcha. on my end about about writing and and mm-hmm. um and uh so yeah i, I really not that I tried to distance myself from right, right. it, but it, I just but didn't know it, if it uh, crossed your yeah. mind. I feel that. I, I just, I think the main connection that I felt was just the mania of Nick Cage just <laughs> losing his shit in a beautiful way. Because <laughs> that dude's just... Yeah, but I mean, sh- sure. But that's a, it, it is, it's definitely it a reach. Nick Cage, but, but he was, I mean, the, the, the characters couldn't be more different. Right, right, right. Motivations um, and yeah, and the and the and the narrative uh, and, and and all of the um, all of the action absolutely that, that is happening to uh, in and around the, the characters there mm-hmm. is, is very different. So um, for for Colorado Space, it was really just kind of like trying to identify two main um, like well three main pillars. One being um, the the quaint, very you know, this pastoral um, New England farmhouse mm-hmm. uh, family um, melancholic uh, theme, um, and then the the quality of what the color was going to be bringing to um, to uh, to that, and how it would then and. and so and so, yeah. The, couldn't have been uh, more different than than, sure. a, than a, a Mandy, but um, for the, sure. Yeah, when I started up writing for it, I think the well, the first thing that I did was was write the the main the main theme. It was mm-hmm. um, that little thing. It's actually played on a, a Fender Rhodes through some Ooh. through some uh, some fun gear and um yeah i was curious the instruments you were using because i know hereditary was like super i don't know it, it, colorado space felt a lot more all over the place like it was still cohesive but 
but it felt like there were definitely a, it was a different sound than hereditary was which i appreciated i hope so <laughs> <laughs> no it was identical actually <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um well everybody we we all decided you know talking with richard earlier on he really wanted for there to be a, a, a sense of this quaint simplicity uh, to the to the family in, in a mm-hmm. very uh, a familiarity, something that you could just kind of sink your teeth into and and and, um, and and openly just accept as very as this very human um, uh, uh, you know this melancholic human story that we're that we're walking in into in the very mm-hmm. beginning of the the film and so piano and chamber orchestra and you know like these lush strings and, and, and woodwinds that became the basis that would then be, you know, kind of transfigured over the course of the, uh, the action, um, throughout the course of the film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was, I guess that was square two. The, the first thing really was coming up with a device that was going to be the unraveling. And that mm-hmm. was the, the color theme. And, um, and then, and then uh, shortly after that was uh, coming up with the sound, quote unquote, the sound of the color. And that was <laughs> what you know Richard was asking very early on was just what does a, um, you know, we have a, an alien, uh, 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 a hyper um, realized, uh, advanced life form that uh, that manifests itself as a, uh, a color in a uh, in, in spectrum of light that does not exist in our uh, reality up until now, and yeah. um, and what does that sound like? And so I was <clears throat> toying with. I mean, we, we've talked about this in the past, but I, I'm kind of obsessed with uh, density and mm-hmm. um, and complex layers of um, of information and trying to just kind of supersaturating um, spaces and um, and trying to find ways of organizing uh, that saturation. And so this became another. Um, challenge in all of that and so the beginning of it I started with taking uh, recordings of coral reefs underwater recordings of coral reefs really which are very um, just these ultra dense uh, cacophonies of clicks and pops and um, uh-huh. little um, moans and, and stuff and very very thick it's almost a, a white noise but with but it has definition and taking several of those and running them through various um harmonic generators and processes and mm-hmm. and then creating this uh this kind of musical cacophony out of that and then in, in, and then playing along with that in some uh more non-conventional te- technique ways with the uh, with the saxophones and then running them through you know similar processes and and then yeah so that became it became the our quote unquote color of uh, you know the sound of the color there, and Damn, that's um, you can hear this kind of like shimmering, um, this kind of I don't even 
I don't know if that I have words to describe quite what it, what, it, what, it, what the result is. I think but that's good. It is this this um, this shimmering kind of crystalline. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, pointed sort of uh, white noise that that uh, was the basis um, for for everything that would come out of uh, of the color and that color theme. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, it just it, I just I, I kept on from there. It was a really fun. Um, uh, excursion because the idea of taking natural sounds and distorting and uh, and uh, transmogrifying and uh, and making them become something else um, was it, it, that became very very fun and so throughout the score one of the first things that happens in the in those first voiceover. Um, shots in the film you use an elk it's right Didn't it's you? an elk yeah yeah um, so there's elk in there there's bison and um there's quite That's a bit thing. of sand hill crane which wow was, i'm still I, the sand hill crane still my favorite thing when i listen to the few scenes that have like really predominant crane uh-huh. noises <laughs> I love it it's so eerie it, it there the rhythm that the rhythms that that they provide um, were some of the most fun things to play with. I mean, they provide, and then I you know slowed them down and twisted and turned. Right. Bit, but um, at, you know the resultant um, uh, just mayhem that comes out of that about that animal's mouth um, was yeah was one of my uh, favorite things to work with. Where'd you get the animal sounds from? Oh, I just, um, various sound libraries that uh-huh. I tracked down and, um, yeah. That's so cool, man. I, I fucking love listening to your scores because I never know like what it is that I'm hearing. I'm like, that could be his voice. That yeah. could be like <laughs> concrete against like, I, I just never even know, but I'm like, it's just so interesting. I know there's going to be, there's, there, I, oh, well, I, I imagine that there's at least a couple elk hunters who have been to the movie being like, oh shit. They're like, I what? Sound. <laughs> because, you know, I, I fucked with it, but the, 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 the elk sound is still, it's still recognizable for somebody who knows. And if anybody's right. ever been out elk hunting, they definitely know that fucking sound. <laughs> That's so interesting. And dude, I love that it's like what you did to the score is what happens in the movie. Like with the alpacas, like it's nature being it it's just i it's just amazing how that works like with the score like it's like the color permeated the score in a weird sort of way that it like like an elk hit by the color would make the kind of sound of like the warped like fucked up sort of thing that's like Ta-da! that's yeah. the feeling i had <laughs> yeah. yeah how much of your voice did you use or if any um i always use my voice uh-huh um yeah, and even even when I'm writing for other instruments, I a lot of the time I'll use my voice to map things out and then replace it with other things. But mm-hmm. um, there's there's not definitely not anywhere near as much as there was on Hereditary. Yeah, there is there is some, um, but it it plays a much more supportive role uh, this time around. And there were other instruments that were much more dominant. There's um, 
an instrument called the tubax, which is a modern design, um, a modern designed uh, contrabass saxophone that I that I acquired recently, and mm-hmm. so that that plays a, a pretty substantial role throughout the course of the. What's di- What's the, different about it? What's different about it? Um, the tubax. The tubax. It's um. It's a. It, it's it's another. Um, it's an octave lower than a baritone saxophone, so okay. it's uh, another fourth lower than than uh, the bass saxophone mm-hmm. that I that I usually that I'm known for playing. It goes down to the depth of the the contrabass clarinet that I that I used a lot on Hereditary. Yeah. But it, it is a conical instrument, not a um, not a cylindrical instrument. So the overtone series is that of, of saxophones. It's based, so it's it's it, uh, it it's uh, mechanics are all based on a mm-hmm. saxophone system. But it was laid out. Um, made by somebody in Munich who redesigned the instrument so that the cone it's longer pipe with a with a tapered um, flare mm-hmm. that um, takes a longer time to get from um, from uh, end to end and so he he gets the depth of of pitch by extending the pipe rather than um, than making the conical flare more extreme yes. Yeah. Um, and so it's a much more manageable instrument, and it is, a, and it and it has, it's 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 got yeah, it's got a, a, a thickness and can and can take to arpeggiation in the way that I do a, a, a lot of on those instruments in, in uh, very very easily, and so uh, it became uh, the meat of a lot of, of a lot of those scenes, especially the the last scene, the color, the whole um, that dirging, the big um, that. That big thing that sounds kind of like a overdriven synth arp. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's not synth. That's a that's a sax. Hmm. That's super interesting, man. What? Uh, since we last talked, where have you grown like musically? Like with like discovering new instruments or new sounds? Like have you hit any new peaks of like your grooves? And I mean, obviously, you're always making something new. But have you really found a like different sound that you think you can? Articulate or anything like that. Um, I, I think yes. Uh, every time, that's a huge part of of what I like about scoring is that I I take them on as challenges. Yeah. How 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 I'm going to how I'm going to bring something else into the fray. How how I'm going to challenge myself to learn something that I don't necessarily know or get into mm-hmm. a space that I'm not entirely comfortable with. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know how to answer that question in any concise yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it's a big question. Clear way, just because, yes, there's there's been a lot of... Um, there's always uh, furthering of the technique under, on various instruments, um, but... Uh, but hard to define exactly when and what um, yeah. in the arc. But yeah, I, that that instrument that I just described was, is mm-hmm. one of the things that has come out of the course of the past year and a half, and um, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> um. 
Where where have you been uh, with with non musical stuff? What have you been thinking about? Whether it's other people's art that's been out, or if politics have particularly struck you, relationships. How have you been? How have you been mentally? Um, better than ever. I mean, things are. I'm, I'm feeling very good. Um, I'm. I've been. Re- I, well, I just finished. Um, I guess I didn't just finish it, but I <laughs> finished a while back. The uh, the the series of uh, the series of sci-fi books by Shijin Liu, this Chinese author who yeah. um, who wrote this. Have you read those? Um, it's the uh, the Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy. I guess no. more more famously known as the uh, the Three Body Problem. No, I ha- I haven't even heard of that. What's it about? Oh, definitely. Just Dump it on the me. Best, just the best sci-fi um, uh, book, uh, series of sci-fi books I've, that I've ever read. And, wow. And actually very um, influential on on a lot of the concepts in making the score for the color, actually. Really? Because there's some gorgeous um, de- depictions of... Um, of higher dimensional beings and objects yeah. uh, in, in it that are I I have never read anybody who is so thoughtful so knowledgeable and, and so creative in their storytelling as, as this and not only not only that but 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 also just puts puts it into such a um, a, a compelling and um, I mean it's just it is some there are, there are twists and turns it's just it's just incredibly um uh, suspenseful uh, <clears throat> storytelling mm. and and some of the most original concepts that I've What's that it I've what's it about like what's the, the or anything if you can summarize like that, the plot like if you can summarize the plot a little bit like what what happens oof, um best give me two like whatever you can <laughs> I would Rather not sum- I'd rather not <laughs> summarize the plot for anybody who actually wants to read it. Yeah, um, that's fair. Because that's the fair. more I would say about it, the more you're just kind of giving up. Right, what, right. I feel that. You know what? Um, but needless to say, it if you are if you are a fan of um, of of sci-fi, if you're already in there. Then, right. Then you probably know this stuff and if you don't and you're already in there then definitely check this out and you will like it it, it definitely is not something that is for uh, I wouldn't imagine that casual readers are going to be all that enamored with it just because <laughs> it's quite heady yeah. from time to time and, and, and it's thick but if you, um, if you if you like to just get uh, fully immersed uh, and taken yeah. on um, on, a, on a really beautiful adventure. That's that's one that I would highly recommend. I mean, does it and, actually deal with like physics, like the actual three body problem, in any way, or is that just sort of like an inspiring? Oh no no no! That's the thing. It's I mean, his the author's knowledge of physics. Though it's it it goes deep. Well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Um, so mm. yeah, it it again it's. It's serious reads, but um, but so so fun and really satisfying. Well, I got to get into so it. So that and you know, I always, I 
always have my Jim Harrison um, mm. for a completely other um, set of, of uh, reading pleasures. Mm-hmm. And um, and I've been building a a um, an old building. The house that I live in in Vermont um, is a hundred and six hundred and sixty years old. Holy shit! And I don't I don't know if you told me that before. That's crazy. Probably didn't. I don't tend to talk about it, but um, <laughs> but it had a it had a building, a octagonal building on it, um, off to the side, that um, was not well kept. Uh huh. That my house is, you know, pristinely um, uh, uh, kept from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that one was never. Um, it's a little. It's just a little, it's like kind of like used as a shed, and then they're rotting out and falling apart. So, I've been building uh, that anew, which has been very, very, very fun. Are you doing that all by yourself? Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, but just uh, having having a having that being able to kind of bring back part of this property, yeah, um, to resemble what it did when it was first. Um, built it's been really really beautiful and and my fruit trees are doing well i've been having some problems with porcupines but porcupines um, in vermont learning more someone just told me that i can that i can if i build the right house (laughs) okay um, for crows (laughs) that i can can, i can convince a mating pair of crows to come and live in the yard next to the fruit trees and they're so territorial that they will fuck with whoever comes around, and but not us. Because if, if we leave them food, they'll understand that we aren't to be fucked with. Right. But the porcupines would be, and so I, I'm not sure. I haven't vetted this yet. It was just told me um, So yeah, I'm uh, I'm hoping that 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 turns out to be fruitful because as um, as far as um, solutions go, it sounds pretty fun. So you're about to see some like porcupine versus crow kind of kind of battles. I imagine that the porcupine's not going to do a whole lot of battling. They'll just <laughs> just run away. <laughs> they'll, just, they'll just do their waddle. They it's, they're they're kind of an amazing alien of an animal. Um, I've never seen anything quite like it. They're eerie. They do not <laughs> give a fuck, but they do. <laughs> really ruin fruit trees <laughs> what what fruit trees do you have what's on the trees i have apples and uh, pears and plums and cherries do they climb what are, how do they fuck, yes. how do they fuck up the fruit trees i'm they just trying to picture they chew off all the bark <laughs> jesus they off, it's just, yeah they just walk up they just walk <laughs> up a thing and chew off all its skin they're terrible <laughs> they sound like assholes a little bit they 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 truly are but they look <laughs> They look kind of like a magical little Yoda Buddha um, <laughs> with spines. So I don't think I've ever it's seen one. Hard to stay mad at them when when you're around them. <laughs> you're just uh, like, are are they fast moving or do they just kind of waddle? No, no, they they don't. I don't think that they they were needed to move fast. So that was <laughs> that was certainly not a not a skill that they've they've developed over the years. <laughs> That's crazy. I I read once. I think like this guy saw like a baby crow stuck in like a net. Like it was like an iron fence or something, 
and he picked it up to like try to get he got it out of the net but then it died in his hands and like crows saw it and i think for like three or four years afterwards they continued to attack him every time he left his house because they thought that he killed the <laughs> the chick it's just like i believe it i've heard some very intense things about crows <laughs> crows yeah i was spending time in the woods um they are there's the crows the, the language that they speak to each other when we're all listening and when they're just kind of in gangs uh-huh. it always sounds so coarse um and simple but when you're out in the woods and they don't know you're there and listening the 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 shit that they say to each other is it's, it's so complex really so delicate um just soft and cooing and, and it is truly language it's not just bird song like one saying the right. same thing and the other one saying the same thing just kind of like location uh devices it's it's not it, it is it, it is nuanced and it is non-repetitive it's really gorgeous that's amazing so yeah if uh, if you can yeah it, you take the opportunity to walk around where you where you know that there are crows sometimes just find a spot sit down there and wait for a few hours and um till till everything just kind of dies down and, and forgets that you're there uh, yeah and then you you will hear it would you use them in, in music um i or would they get pissed off <laughs> i would use anything in, in music if it, if it got the job done mm-hmm. um i Trying to think of it, did I? I have used some, not that sound, but I have used some crow sounds. In, in oh, really? Already. Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, God, I hope your fruit trees make it out. If you can, so you have to build a birdhouse first. Um, I am going to, right now. Yeah, I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm. I'm using garlic oil to to uh, dissuade and. Then in the spring, yes, I'll be building a crow house Damn. because I think that that's red. I also will try to get bats. I'm trying to get bats, so I'm I'm putting up bats? bat houses. Yeah. You want bats around? Like, how does that work? Um, you know, bats all over North America have been having a really hard time with uh, white nose disease. It's a fungus that I think um, I read that. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and especially it's hit the um, northeast, and so bat populations are down. Mm-hmm. And so the, there are organizations that are trying to get more people to put up bat houses, which is just a you know it's a it's just a, a particular kind of way to build a box uh-huh. and put it up in, into the trees, that, so that it, it it becomes a habitat suitable to the way that they like to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. And then, yeah, so if you put up enough of those and hopefully entice them who are who are wandering to to set up shop, then you can have communities and of bats that that you're you know you're providing shelter for them, but then they're they're also um the the upside is that they are gonna kill a lot of the bugs right that's that's really interesting. I hope you get to do that. Wow. Yeah, we'll see if, uh, if if they work. Um, I have one up now, and I'm gonna try to mm. double down. Well, cool, man. Sounds like you got a lot of really nice projects going on. Did you did you build the sauna that you have, or was that already there in some fashion? Oh no, no, I, yeah, I built it. Wow how how was that process? It's really fun. 
<laughs> to make things that weren't there there and then <laughs> yeah and then sit in them for uh, sure yeah it's, it's a beautiful space um and and um i mean you know the, all the, so much of what it is that i do music wise is so physical mm-hmm. and i've found that over the years you know everyone talks about optimization but one of the best things for um uh, rebounding and recuperation from, especially for kind of deep tendon um, issues, mm-hmm. uh, which which are which is primarily the kinds of things, the repetitive stress um, that I'm dealing with with some of the instruments, yeah. and some of the ways that I play them. So um, yeah, it's a, it's just a great it's a great thing to do on the regular to to use that. Um, not only is it some of the it's it's the most pleasurable but it also is quite useful mm-hmm. what else have you been doing in that same vein besides building or reading um, I mean I've been doing a lot of like during the summer I do I've uh, been doing some races and stuff running uh half marathon and really triathlon and um so a little bit of of fun um fun uh endurance sports yeah um and you know i, I just i do that already just uh, in terms of training and yeah and keeping in shape and so there's a lot of that and uh, yeah, not a, not a whole lot of time around, beyond music and friendship and um, and trying to stay trying to stay active. Yeah, and and out in the out in the world and in, and then out in out in the world and out in nature. And so, if I if I get a good cross section of all of that, I'm I'm happy. For sure. Yeah. That's good, man. So your relationships have been healthy and reciprocal. Good. Very, very much so. I'm glad to hear that. Man, it's it's been really nice chat with you again. Um, you too, man. How I, are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I thought it, I thought it was so funny because I saw Colorado Space at the Michigan Theater, and I just always remember that you're from Ann Arbor, and I'm just like, well, he'd probably like appreciate that fact <laughs> that I did that. But I've, I've oh, been good. Sure. I, I've been, uh, yeah. the podcast is going awesome. Like, like I've talked to the editor, the DP, the uh, makeup artist, and I think, I think that might be it. Maybe, maybe I'm missing one more. Oh, and I think the production designer, all for Color Out of Space. So I've, I've been able to chat with everybody from the cast and it's been really, really nice because everyone like kind of knows each other and it's been really Really good. I've, I've been in a good state of mind. Very meditative, focusing on, on nature too. I'm really excited to go up north, up to Mackinac. I'm going to go to the uh, the Dark Sky Park that's up there. It's one of the international Dark Sky Parks. So there's like, yes. Yes. Ha- have you been up there? I've been up to Mackinac, but I haven't been up to that. Um, it's been very many years. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never been to a Dark Sky Park before. I've never even really seen like a full, real night sky of stars so i'm i'm really looking forward to that i think it'll it'll be changing that's gonna be wonderful 
Yeah. Well, thanks so much for the chat. I appreciate Dude, it. My pleasure. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, next thing, next thing you do, we can. I, I definitely will want to talk to you, professionally or not, about Uzumaki because I'm just hype about that. But yeah, I appreciate probably you taking the time, time. Probably this time next year, that'll all have been uh, out and about, and everybody. All right. And, uh, be something to talk about. Sounds good. I hope. Yeah, I dude. wish you the best with your <laughs> battles with nature. <laughs> I'm hoping the fruit stays, the porcupines fuck off, and the crows then yeah. bats do what they gotta do. Yes, just find some new balance. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I'll I'll hit you up okay, when dude. this is uh, published, and I'll talk to you soon. Cool. Thanks, Kate. Bye bye. How was your morning been? Did you just wake up? <laughs> yeah, I just woke up. Um, I, uh, I'm over here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm entering my last week on my current movie. Um, it's a, another Nick Cage film. Uh, it's going good. Another uh, Nick Cage film? Another oh Nick Cage gosh. film. Yeah, it's, uh, we're entering our last week of editing before we turn over to sound and music Jeez. and everybody else. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be a busy week. Um, Are you just doing uh, exclusively Nick Cage films from here on out? Or? <laughs> I don't know. I got sent a script to another one, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I got I got sent number four, but it couldn't work out for uh, scheduling reasons. Oh, but man. I'm re- but I'm quite open to it, man. He's a he's a joy <laughs> to work with. Yeah, he's got this really weird vibe, like that's completely different than anything anybody else brings to the table. He's like, oh, God, it's just so chaotic. I, uh, I, we were, so this third film I'm on with him is called Pig. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays a recluse, a hermit, who lives out oh, in yeah. the woods outside of Portland. And I think it's a, it's, I think it's a much different movie than what, like, what the internet thinks it is. Because <laughs> um, it's, uh, I don't know how much I can say about it, because I don't think, I don't think, like, the director or anybody has said, like, anything to the press yet. <laughs> But um, it, it's a, it's a straight drama. Like it's uh, it's everything's very low key and it's played very straight. Um, but I was in we're in the midst of you know finishing the edit on this now, and I heard about uh, this new Lionsgate film he has coming up where mm-hmm. it's you know this meta version of himself. Oh my god, yes, dude! I'm so yeah, ready for that. <laughs> the unbearable weight of a of talent, or I forget yeah. the exact name, but I'd be lying if like I. If I uh, hadn't been thinking, I would like to read the script. No, that sounds amazing, for sure. Indeed. So, man, Colorado Space, tell me all about it. How'd you get on it? How was it? I've talked to, I talked to Katie Byron, and she told me to give you a hello. Oh, really? Cool. Also talked to um, the DP. Steve. Yeah, I talked to Steve on Friday too. So I talked to both of them. So you're the trifecta. And I've just heard loads about this set. And Katie said it was like a really interesting shooting and a really interesting workplace in general. So I'm really excited to hear your your experience. My take on it. Yeah. Uh, Where to start? I guess I'll I'll start with (laughs) SpectreVision. This, so Color Out of Space was my, something like my 10th film with SpectreVision. I have, I've known the guys since um, 2000. 
2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first film I did with uh, them was this film called Rays, which was uh, one of the partners, uh, Josh Waller, one of his, his first movie he directed. Mm-hmm. And then like from that relationship, I did a movie with him and uh, Daniel Noah called Mechanic. And then I got a shot to edit Cooties, um, which was uh, uh, um, my first time working with Elijah. And then it's kind of blanketed into something quite wonderful since then. Um, I, uh, was re- I was coming off of uh, Mandy and Daniel is a Real when I had the... Uh, I would heard that they had... Uh, uh, were in talks with Richard to do Color Out of Space. And mm-hmm. this was back in 2015. Wow. And I remember getting really excited about it having no, <laughs> I, I didn't really know anything about Lovecraft at that point, but I remember going out and buying the book with really? a lot of the short stories, sitting down at a hotel in Palm Springs and like blowing through this short story anthology. Did you enjoy it? And, oh yeah, I mean it's some, it was quite unusual and I mean <laughs> the prose is, you know, a hundred years old, and, right. but you can see how it has been the basis for so much of what mm-hmm. horror has become in the last hundred years and how, how much he laid the ground roots and the legacy for everyone else to come and it was quite interesting that I, uh, I, I wasn't really sure how they were going to adapt this to a film, especially with a budget that I knew that we would be working with um, we don't have large budgets mm-hmm. we are in color out of space ended up being like a six million dollar film but you know looking at the script i was so i had no idea how they were going to do anything like this <laughs> or below like right. 30 million or 20 million um but i remember yeah so i read the script and then it just kind of nothing really happened with it for a couple years uh and we had the opportunity to go make some other movies in the meantime but um I was in the midst of uh, finishing another film with of theirs, uh, Daniel Isn't Real, mm-hmm. and the producer, uh, one of the producers kind of casually dropped a question like, are you editing color? And I was like, I wasn't aware that color was going. <laughs> I wasn't aware that this movie's actually being made. Like, I haven't heard news on this project in years. Uh, the last time I'd actually heard anything about it was when we were, uh, we were doing ADR for Mandy, mm-hmm. um, and I was in a session with... Uh, Josh Waller and um, our ADR engineer and uh, Cage and uh, Josh one of the producers got a phone call and it was Richard Stanley like on the line and I guess suppose they were discussing notes about the script and I remember like he opened up like Skype and Richard was there and like Nick and Rich- Richard shared exchange and I wasn't sure if like if, is that the first time that they've actually like seen each other or like <laughs> met each other was like over Skype in this ADR session um <laughs> But yeah, I, uh, they after um, it was clear that this movie was going to go, they set up a meeting with me and Richard just to kind of see if we were on the same page and to kind of see if this would be a good fit. Um, I've been really fortunate that SpectreVision has been very kind to me and very good to me that I they haven't really even been considering other editors for positions unless the for the position unless the director specifies that he wants to talk mm-hmm. to someone specific or he has someone else in mind so they were like as long as you get as long as you you know talk with Richard and you guys get along and you're on the same page and like you could and he's and he's happy with us and happy with me happy with you then let's do this um 
So I logged in one day on Skype and um, was that scary? Was, oh, talking it, to him? It not. It, there was a really cool happens or coincidence when we both kind of logged on, mm-hmm. because I was wearing um, a T-shirt from Mandy that said that. Uh, that had this um, in Mandy. There's all these t- chapter markers and title cards, yeah, yeah. and one of the shirt um, says the Shadow Mountains on it. Oh, yeah. And as soon as I open up Skype, Richard is there sitting in his mountain home in France with the exact same T-shirt on. So you're in. Hey, that's all uh, you need. It, it kind of felt like it was good from there. Like it, didn't, <laughs> it kind of felt like I had it as, within like the first five seconds. Oh yeah, unless he just hated you, but. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, we we chatted for like an hour and a half, and that would have been so like cool, man. that was that was the first. What shirt are you wearing right now, Brett? Right now, I'm wearing my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing a ratty old like gray Henley that's like 20 years old. Well, darn. I guess we can't get along then, but no, unfortunately. <laughs> but no, like Richard and I kind of we got along really quickly. Um, talked a lot about uh, how the hell we were gonna, how the hell this movie could be done, mm-hmm. knowing that we were working on a limited budget. Um, talked a lot about the themes of the film, what he wanted to capture, uh, his of course the obstacles, the objectives. And like after an hour and a half of just kind of me hearing his story about Moreau and um, what he's been doing the last like 20 years that was set. And I, uh, within like three or four weeks, I was on my way out to Portugal to set wow, and kind of the adventure started from there. That's exhilarating. Yeah. Do you think you accomplished what you set out to do and what he, what he was aiming for? Was it tough trying to get that all together? Uh, it was certainly there were certainly challenges yeah i mean we were like i said before it was a really ambitious script for the budget we had and yeah. it was definitely one it was definitely the one of the most predominant uh, obstacles in the editing process and the filmmaking process and the production process what sorts of things are you post. talking about um well so in the film color out of space you have this meteorite that lands on this farm and this alien entity begins to seep its way into the farm it begins uh, there's a uh, this parasite like creature gets into the groundwater and begins to infect everything on the farm and everything on the farm begins to take this very alien like appearance um Colors begin shifting. You have flora and fauna begin to mutate and change yeah, color. Yeah, I was super interested in like how, like even like the water was changing. Like it, like the hints of everything were changing. Like yeah, even the yeah. things that you wouldn't even consider. Like because you're like okay, the the plant life, like the nature life, and then it's like no, even like, like the everything, the walls. There's just like a hue that's taking over. Exactly and. Yes, and that was one of the things that we have been trying to kind of dial in and think about and design a schematic for how would these things grow and change over the course of the film. Mm -hmm. So in addition to, you know, the um, uh, more plant life coming up and some of the visual effects intensive set pieces with obviously animals becoming mutated and you have um, prosthetics and creature effects. At one point the color attacks the family and you have disgusting body horror um, that goes on between um, yeah. some of the main characters. That was tough you, to watch, man. Yeah, tough to edit, too. <laughs> tough to, tough to, tough, tough yeah, to why didn't you well. just cut all of it out, 
it, oh, man, that it became really apparent that was some of the producers and Richard's favorite stuff, and it was some of the best stuff too. Uh. It was there was a there was actually a question at one point like how much of this do we want to trim down or <laughs> how much of this do we leave in because it's so uncomfortable but oh my god it, yeah it, it was like the it was the biggest challenge i've had in a while watching something like when they're just like moaning i was just yeah. like holy shit please just like end it end it now yeah it was um richard and the producers certainly didn't want to shy away from something that you know made you uncomfortable right. and i mean to one of the things that was con- in constant discussion was how do we nail Lovecraftian tone? The sense mm-hmm. of sm- being uh, indescribably small in the scope of the cosmos. And the having it was really important that we make the audience feel that these characters are absolutely out of their depth and they have no comprehension of these otherworldly forces that surround them and so we didn't want to shy too much away from this a feeling of ultimate dread and helplessness Mm -hmm. because we all kind of felt like that was essential in getting the tone of this story and the author's stories right um so there was always kind of a question of do we make this more digestible to the audience or do we allow it to go dark and you know follow up a dark moment with a little some kind of uh, black humor a little bit of a release and we found that was a really interesting balance balancing process in the edit where you would have something that was very dark and hard to watch with a quip or or really uh, um, some kind of black comedy and there was tons of these opportunities and so it was all kind of like what was like nick's like weird voice (laughs) like the impression of his dad he was doing whatever like i it 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 like messed with me so bad because on one hand I was like, "What is this dude doing?" But it was, it was so there weird. Is, I love yeah, that middle ground of like, should I be laughing or crying or should I leave? Like, and you're you not just, really sure, and that's wonderful. No, it's, just icky. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, it's kind of all those things. Yeah. Um, Nick, uh, so Nick had designed um, this performance. So the, the meteorite, when it begins to kind of leach into you and mutate you, it affects all the characters in different ways. Like uh, Lavinia, one of the main characters, goes through this process of, uh, like, a, um, her, she begins to feel ill. Uh, one character, the little boy Jack, begins to feel drawn to the well, like he's being pulled towards it. Yeah, Jack and was on Nick, some other stuff. Yeah, exactly. And Nick, uh, Nick designed a performance around the idea that his character was regressing to become like his father. Uh, He wanted to play it as if he was becoming the source of what he ultimately feared the most, which was Mm -hmm. becoming a direct representation of his dad. And Cage was channeling Coppola. He was channel. He was channeling his dad to try and so all that affectation. A lot of people have been like attributing Trump to like him doing. That's like what a Trump I heard. Impression. Yeah, yeah. He was. That's not necessarily what he was going for. He was that's going for his his father and trying wow. to kind of bring that out. And that was yeah, kind of the I affectation just, and the hand movements that he had. That's crazy. I understood it as just the fact that like like it made sense for me considering that the. They emphasize multiple times in the movie that the color was also changing, like, spatiality and time. And mm-hmm. so I was just assuming that it was just kind of becoming this, like, melting pot. And I think, I think it was done so well, like, at the end, when he's sitting 
in the living room and it shows the family like it just it starts to warp i I was really happy with that because i think a lot of movies like especially with editing it's so important but like when movies use time stuff can be left out to where it like it's it's not believable that like time is being Mm -hmm. messed with but I thought it was done amazingly well because they were like, "Is it day? Is it night?" And then I was sitting there like, "Is it day? Is it night?" I haven't really been <laughs> like paying any any attention. Oh, that's awesome! We got the the good kind of confusion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like real... appreciative. I was like, perfect. Yeah, you're lost in a good way, and certainly we were trying to kind of get a sense of. We wanted to make it. We want you to feel like there are forces all around you, and you have no and you have no comprehension of like hey, you this can't alien even force. Keep up with it. But yeah, it's like, how much do you like sacrifice that for storytelling comprehension? How much do you need to explain like what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, like for for example, um, so Richard has been in my early conversation with Richard. A, a lot of the conversation was like, well, Lovecraft almost never described this thing, this this entity, this alien. He always just really? he always just called it a color that was like beyond the color spectrum, and you. It, it, so how do you show that? How do you shoot right. that? How do you build that? How do you edit that? And Richard came up with this... Um, he, he tried to base almost all of his ideas for the color, for the sounds of the color in science. And so he um, wanted to base this idea of the color is that you actually don't see most of the color. Most of the color is invisible. What mm-hmm. you do see, um, this magenta shade, is um, the what the human eye would perceive it as, um, because most of the color would exist outside of the spectrum that is visible to the human eye. Ooh. So most of it would be in the infrared color space or the ultraviolet color space, and the part of the um, this entity or this creature that would exist in the human spectrum would only be perceivable as like magenta or pink. Um, and so he designed this entire color spectrum for this entity kind of based around that and um, ended up working really beautiful with the um, palette of where this film was set, which is in the most lush farm you could imagine up in the mm-hmm. um, mountains up in Centra, Dublin for Massachusetts. And so you have this really vibrant green mixed with this um, warping, contorting magenta and pink that gradually overtakes the entire movie um, and the entire color spectrum. Um, and that was... I'm sorry, what was the original... What was the initial question? <laughs> I don't know. That was, that was some good stuff that we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciated... The first thing I ever saw about the movie because um, I saw that Colin Stetson was doing the soundtrack again and he and I chatted back when he did Hereditary, and so mm. I saw he was doing the soundtrack, so I was like, okay, I'm in regardless. And then I saw that it was Nicolas Cage, then I saw it was Richard Stanley, then I saw it was a Lovecraft adaptation, I'm like, oh my god, these are just mm. all great things. But the first thing that I saw was the shot of Nick where he's standing in the car mm. yeah, um, with the door open, and it's just like this foggy pink, and I was like, oh my god, that looks beautiful. And I was oh, so yeah. happy with like how that ended up being in the movie, but yeah, the pink just... Like when they first show the lawn, and it's just like really subtle. Like like some of the flowers are pink. Like it looked so beautiful. Like the the color was really interesting. Oh, I was yeah, also curious. Um, I I've seen a lot of discussion like for a long time that if that movie was or if that story was ever going to be adapted, that it needed to be a black and white film mm-hmm. in order to like accurately disclose. You, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that the, there wasn't actual color. How do you think that would go if if it was well, a black and white? Well, that's been done. 
Um, the, the one of the reasons that you know I think Richard that was never really an option for him was because mm -hmm. it had been done like uh, right. close to ten years ago. Um, mm -hmm. There was a German film that did that, and uh, Richard specifically wanted to you know do something new with it. And right. I also don't think it was ever really a, um, a possibility for the producers or for the other filmmakers, you know, because they wanted to make a. Uh, it was just never really on their radar, um, mm -hmm. and this other film had done it so wonderfully. Where the this entire uh, this German film, like I said, had yep. had been set back in, World War, in the World War II era, and as the meteorite lands and the color begins to kind of infect everything, you have this. It 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 does not go to the same amount of pink or magenta that we do. They yeah. decide to kind of um, have this. Uh, they showed it as m more minimalistic. Um, but the, yeah, I. Uh, it was clear for us that we wanted something different than that. Mm -hmm. What do you think is more powerful, or do you think they both have their own their own merit? I think they're very different films. I mean, the, uh, one of the goals that Richard had, kind of setting out to do this, was a lot of Lovecraft Lovecraft's stories and his characters exist as. Narrators, um, uh -huh. you have like in co the initial color story, for instance. Most of the story has been told from the perspective of, uh, you know, a surveyor who comes to Arkham like ten years, twenty years after this incident has happened. And with the German version, that's kind of something similar along similarly along those lines. You have a character mm -hmm. that comes to Arkham after all this has happened, and the story is being relegated to him. But Richard always wanted to set this story. To the, on the farm, he always wanted to be told through the perspectives of the characters, and have this mutations develop around them, in a way where you ultimately don't know where this is going to go. And he wanted to change the framing device to leave this um, a bit more unpredictable. Uh, so they're, I think they're very, very different executions. They're very different mm -hmm. stories. I mean, Richard is also you know a singular filmmaker, and he has is not afraid to go to extreme levels of black humor and hmm. he wears his, his influences on his sleeve with um, the gore and you know, John Carpenter like vibes and mm -hmm. he's not afraid to go dark and um, sinister but also it was all really clear to him that he needed a this uh, he needed a story with pathos and emotion and to root this with this character with his family and so as the uh, this force begins to overtake everything you have a the theme this theme of this family being ripped apart by external forces in some of our initial early conversations when we talked about like what is the heart of this film what is the, the real story here richard kind of touched upon how he wanted it to how he wanted to dramatize how a family in the 21st century could be ripped apart by external forces beyond their control um which to me, it feels like the most Lovecraftian theme you could imagine. Um, mm -hmm. So he was really important for him to kind of bring in all these, you know, uh, factors that are current today. He wanted to bring in ideas of climate change. He wanted to bring in ideas of um, every single character in their family has different attributes and different objectives. Um, they've had different traumas happen to them. Um, for instance, it's we wanted to kind of lay in this idea with um, Teresa, the mother, that you know she's barely survived um, a route with cancer, and that had 
almost ripped the family apart. And then you have this bit with Nathan wanting to come out to the city, and he's uprooted all of his family, and it's clear that we hope that has been made it clear that it has caused some kind of strife within the family. For sure. Um, and so I, I don't... It's hard for me to kind of think of another Lovecraftian story that has kind of taken an approach and set it with the characters directly who it's been happening to. Like most of mm-hmm. these, like I said, most of these other stories of like a narrator that comes in and describes right. something that's happened like 10 years ago. Um, and nailing the tone is kind of a difficult thing too. Um, you have a bunch of other Lovecraft stories you know, uh, Stuart Gordon stuff comes to mind with like From Beyond and Reanimator, mm-hmm. where it also utilizes certain elements of like black humor and horror comedy. And I think we definitely share that kind of characteristic with them. Um, but it's really interesting to kind of see where all of this is going to go, um, knowing that there are a couple other Lovecraft projects in development. And yeah, he's doing a trilogy, isn't he? He is. Yeah, he's. Uh, are you he's planning writing... on getting on board for those two as well? Oh man, I would love the opportunity to get back <laughs> together with him. Uh, there is, yeah, he's writing Dunwich Horror right now. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. If I, I'm not. I don't think I can say what the third one is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he might have even changed his mind from what the third one was going to be since the last time he talked to me. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping I can get on board these. Um, <laughs> and then uh, you have this. Uh, I know there's some other stuff in development right now, like outside of SpectreVision. You have yeah. uh, this Lovecraft County coming out soon. Um, I think there is uh, um, the same guys who did Game of Thrones, I think, are working on something as well. It's crazy um, how influential his work is still. Yeah, and even more in the, in the last couple of years, these themes seem to be more resounding yeah, why do you than think, ever. Why do you think his themes are resonating so much? I think it's a dark sense of... There might be kind of a dark chain of nihilism that seems like it's kind of running through the world right now. A sense that everything is kind of fucked. Yeah, uh, expe- like what? Let's get into that. <laughs> yeah. How, oh, man, where to start with that? One second. <laughs> Richard would talk about this a lot while we were in the editing room, or he would be hearing about all these other Lovecraft projects in development. And he would reference and kind of you know, comment how good it was to be a Lovecraft fan because you have all these things kind of coming down the line. But he kind of talked about how it was a double-edged sword because one of the reasons that he felt like people were more open to either greenlighting Lovecraft or watching Lovecraft stories or themes that have to do with his, his body of work is that it feels like there's almost a deep sense of nihilism or um, uh, doubt kind of lingering in the air around the general public right now, the sense of uh, foreboding, a sense of the end is nigh, the sense that humans are tiny compared to um, the forces of the universe, and why is, I mean, that's that's Richard (laughs) for you, but like, you know, examining why all these things are happening, um, Richard will often talk, like, in our conversations in the editing room, he would often talk a lot about you know, climate change, a sense that the world is moving in a direction and forces are beyond our control and we're going to be subject to them um, really shortly, uh, a sense of um, politics and moving in a direction that seems so uh, kind of counter to a lot of the movements that have been made in the last like 20 years. I mean, Dude, Richard... It's- 
it's so bizarre where we are. Like, yeah. And I, uh, and I get the sensation always that like every, you know, every era of human feels this way. You know, there's always like their, their thing that they're dreading and like, I don't know if it's true, but it seems like it would be a recurring pattern to obviously take the time that you're in and consider that to be really important. But like, we really are at like an extremely important like time just considering like acknowledgement of climate change mm-hmm. and like meat consumption and like production of fossil fuels and then obviously Trump like mm-hmm. it's just weird man I was talking to my friend about it yesterday about how I try to like take myself out of that for a moment and I'm like okay just put yourself in perspective but then if you think about like the presidents that we still discuss most it's ones that were like impeached assassinated <laughs> aimed to be assassinated you know like Mm-hmm. Ones that stirred things up. And I, I just, I'm trying to picture what Trump's going to be like in like 50, 60 years in the history books. And it it really interests me like I, to think of it. Like he was just acquitted of impeachment. Like that's a huge, huge piece of history. Oh, yeah. To just and happen. We're, and we're living right through it. And it just kind of seems, a lot of us kind of just seem like we're kind of bumbling through it. And I think I think most of us kind of knew that they had no real chance of be, of you know getting right, impeached. Yeah. And there's this kind of a sense of like, well, it's obvious that you know there was something going on behind closed doors that was shady and illegal. And yet, because of party lines and the way that politics are go, no one's really going. Nothing's going to happen. Don't you and think the, that's funky? Like it is, the, it's totally funky. I mean, it's it's not like right you want to put. put you want to put some hope in something, but you're just like, it's weird that the impeachment is such a like divided, like it's like an, he like, he considers it an attack on himself. Mm-hmm. Like there's no sort of like, perhaps we should discuss the things that I did so you can better understand it. It's just immediately like, this mm-hmm. is an attack on my administration, which I feel like is just digging the hole deeper because anybody who sees that is going to be like, yeah, you're right. This is an attack. The only We're like thing further could- away from them. The only thing that kind of gave me like a little bit of hope and a little bit of a, oh, okay, that, this is all right, was um, looking at the history of you know, other presidents who have been impeached, mm-hmm. looking at the party lines in the Senate and like, okay, well, how did other Republicans or other Democrats vote uh, against their own party when their president was up for impeachment? Right. And it was kind of ex- down the exact same lines. Like, I don't think like any... A sitting president has ever like not one member of their party has ever voted in favor of right. impeachment in the you know in trial before. So it's like okay, this is kind of consistent at least with history. Right. At least there's some foundation there. Yeah, but I mean, you look at certainly what I try and look at like what my parents grew up with. Um, mm. I'm only 33 or 32, but I look at what my parents lived through with the Cold War and what they went yeah. through with Nixon and the Bay of Pigs and how close right. the entire world was to being annihilated, whether through <laughs> nuclear war or by the uh, forces within the country, whether it was the um, the rise of the um, re- religious right or the um, culture wars in the 80s or the um, you have all the stuff that happened in the 70s. Um, in the 60s, of course, and it's like, how did the country stay together in a country during all of that? <laughs> and somehow it did. And yet we're, I think we're, what we are going through are uncommon challenges. I know. It's good to put that in perspective, but it, you do get scared because you're like, at what point do I have to take this like mm-hmm. seriously? You know, like there was, 
not I there was discussion of nuclear war on the first of the year like yeah <laughs> it's just yeah. like holy shit what's up what's going on and yeah. like I don't even consider myself to be a very political person I think it's important that I try to know in general what's happening but it's honestly just exhausting to like actually invest time in it Mm-hmm. So I, I try to stay away from it, but it's like you can't even ignore it sometimes, man. No, the same. It's gotten so tiring that I just have kind of inadvertently tuned a lot of it out because it's just kind of the same. It's become kind of the same old thing, and it's become so depressing. And it is. There's like and, the silver linings are. <laughs> and to to like what going kind of going back to the initial question, like Richard was like, yes, I think that's why people are ready for Lovecraft because they're so depressed about everything yeah. else. There's a sense of like a sense of foreboding in the air that we're, we're so small and we can't affect any change, which is you know not exactly true, but it, it not, but you have that sensation and there's that feeling sometimes when things get so bad um, that you're looking for some kind of escapism. You're looking for some kind of science fiction or some kind yeah. of release. And um, I, he theorized, and I agree, I think that's kind of why these stories seem more resonant than ever. The world seems like it's on, kind of on a tipping point and on a, a, a pendulum. And we're at that point where... It feels like stories like this, people subconsciously kind of crave. Yeah, I think there's a freedom to it as well, because, like, there's the pure escapism of it, where, like, you're watching a film and you're getting to experience another story. So you get that sensation of being lost in it, so you're not thinking about your own life so much. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, there are the themes, especially in color, that, like, it's kind of a really, like, twisted, like, liberation to understand that something is occurring that you're just going to give yourself over to. Mm-hmm. Because then you then you have to stop. You don't have to listen to that voice in your head anymore that's like, there's something I need to do. And I see a lot of that with discussion of climate change because I think I myself came to grips this year with, like, the seriousness of, mm-hmm. like, climate change. Like, I, there were, like, a couple months where I was, like, pretty numb because I was just, like, oh, my God. Like, it, it dawned on me that it's not something that can just, like, a switch can be flipped. Like, it's a real serious problem. But then, and I don't think this is accurate, but I think it's, along with the movie, I think it's how our brains kind of work. I was trying to find anything to, like, like, I don't want to say, like, a reason to live, but, like, just any justification, any, like, understanding of, like, how we've gotten this far. And I guess I've just tried to picture, and I don't think I believe in this, it's hard to believe in, but I've tried to picture that, like, the demise of humans is, like, a natural progression if that makes sense so like Uh the way that we the way that we frame it is that there's like a moral objectivity to global warming and climate change that like we're doing harm like we're taking from our planet unnecessarily and like selfishly it's an it's an arrogant act and so Uh i try to picture it like what if the actual natural evolution what if in our chemistry and in the way that we act and in our emotions and the consciousness we have what if, like, the actual natural progression of that is to consume, consume, consume until we just destroy ourselves? And then the Earth, like, re... Like, the Earth will be fine. The Earth will hash it all out. The, the, Earth, like, will do, the Earth does not care. The Earth is the original old one, to speak. It, it doesn't... It's not... It's not even really aware we exist. The Earth is a, a right. giant floating rock in space, and certainly, yes, there are ecosystems here, but like, and we are certainly harming them and you know utilizing this finite resource. But mm-hmm. the giant, ast- you know, the Earth has uh, has had 
tons of you know, gigantic disasters happened to it. It's been hit by fucking, you know, mile-long meteorites, for instance, and right. all life has been, almost all life has been disintegrated. Um, you've had, uh, you know, cataclysmic earthquakes, and maybe it wasn't so great for the dinosaurs, but life bounced back, and Earth was fine. Humans, I don't know will if they will be fine, certainly. I mean, you have, you. this is a finite, we, we exist off finite resources. And mm -hmm. it's not just the resources and climate change, but the population is going out of fucking control. And the more that we are having babies and the more that people, you know, feel that they can have, you know, families of eight kids, ten kids, and just consume, 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 there will come a point, I think, within our lifetimes that some real scary shit it will happen. Um, there's, this sen there's a sense that, you know, oh, we survived World War II, we survived the Cold War, like, you know, now that everybody has nukes and we have all kind of learned how fucking terrible war can be, let's all kind of chill out and relax and we're very yeah, fortunate there hasn't shit. been <laughs> yeah but there but i think because of the lack of resources and because of all these things within 50 years it's going to get I, I think i would be uh, i'm optimistic that you know we can always get through all of this with dip diplomatic channels but like the population is going out of control you have finite resources that are coming um you are cutting down the forests the, the, and it's the oceans are boiling and heating up and I have no idea the challenges we're going to be facing within 50 years with the population of where it will be with the resources that we have and we have to kind of learn to be more responsible and renewable with these resources otherwise I think a, a lot of these things that we thought we had escaped are going to rear their heads again um, in yeah. even more dramatic ways for sure and that's the that's the question is like how do we live with that like does everybody have to work really really hard every day or do we just kind of like see it as well this is I happening think it's, a, it's something that everybody has to do i think it's not necessarily one thing that you're not going to have a leader that's going to step up and say right i know how, i know how to fix this i'm going to enact policies follow my lead yeah. it, it's something that everybody has to do everybody has to kind of take this responsibility on themselves to you know, in, in small acts, you know, it's uh, it, it's not it's not buying a coffee every day. It's having a mug right. and making it at home. It's uh, it's being responsible with your trash. It's being it's thinking about um, family planning. It's thinking it's you know, it, it's population growth is real, and it, you have this all these people, and the earth is not sustainable. Um, it's it's all these little acts. Um, I, I don't have the, any answers for it per se, but mm -hmm. it's certainly something I'm aware of. As I'm have you ever heard of uh, uh, prenatalism? I think it's called. No, I haven't. It's this movement of people who are advocating that we stop, we stop reproducing altogether. I have not heard of this. So yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a genuine movement of people who are advocating let everybody stops reproducing completely, and we just sort of let ourselves die out <laughs> which i think is a pretty big that's it's pretty tough i think yeah. to get the whole world on board with that but what do you what do you think about that what does that make you feel when you hear it 
Hey man, Thanos was right. Like <laughs> there is not a there is not unlimited resources for us. I think that's kind of maybe going a step too far because I mean, what's what's the point of art and what's the point of society yeah, yeah. if it doesn't if it doesn't continue? Like huma- humanity mm-hmm. has to continue. Um, right. If it's all gone, then why did we yeah, do it? I I mean, as much as I kind of like to work on movies that are filled with dread and horror, I would never consider myself a nihilist by that sense. Like, there are mm-hmm. beautiful things to live for and work for and strive for. And, I mean, art is high, high among them in terms of things to live for. And passing one's knowledge and culture down to subsequent generations. And so I am not, I would never consider myself a, a, pre, a prenatalist, you said? This just in. Yeah, just Brett like is I, a prenatalist. prenatalist. I can see the headlines now. Oh god! But this Colorado guy, space. Yeah, I wouldn't consider myself as that per se, but I certainly think there are ways we can live more responsibly. Yeah, it just about, had me and, thinking. I was like, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's scary. It's real stuff, you know. I mean, it's I. It, it, I'm thinking of um, the movie Children of Men in particular. Like oh my had, god, that's one of the best dystopian movies ever. It's like just terrifyingly believable. <laughs> it is, and it terrifying believable would be the exact way I'd put it. I saw that movie when I was in high school, I believe, and it shook me for a couple weeks when I saw yeah, it. Yeah, it stays it, the, with you, man. It really does. And the like the tracking shots where there's very minimal editing, like Oh man. Yeah. What, how long is that? He he goes from like he like goes through all the like military into the building up mm-hmm. to the top of the building. Like, I remember just being so engrossed. I was like, "Jeez, man!" It's some ph- it's phenomenal filmmaking. It um, really is. I was uh, watching a a video about 1917 that was comparing it to uh, Children of Men. Um, Children oh, of Men kind of uses the same tactic where they stitch together all of these different takes and to make it feel like one cohesive, one fluid mm-hmm. movement. Um, and it's just so beautifully executed and so well done, and it's the pro- like one of these prime examples of just like the craft, you know, building up to something that's so much more than the sum of its parts. The the sense of like this lingering dread and the sense of hopelessness that you have throughout most of the movie is countered at the very very end with a sense of bright optimism, a sense of a small glimmer of hope. And it's rare you have a film that is able to straddle these two tones and these two contrasting ideas in a way that was done so eloquently and so beautiful as that. And I aspire to work on something or make something that has that sense of resounding, that kind of resounding impact on you as an audience member. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I never... It's like my highest goal to work on something that either leaves you with a sense of hope and brightness that you know it changes your outlook on life, or the exact opposite—something so horrible and scary that it scars your psyche, and it becomes your source of nightmares for decades. Yeah, like, we there, need, we need that, and I think so many people—I don't know if I say it, so many people—but I've a lot of people are afraid of things that are really hard to consume. They're like, "Oh my God, this is like excessive," or like. That's depressing, you know, and I mm-hmm. I think there's a really weird stigma on like sadness and anger and horror and confusion as mm-hmm. like being negative emotions. And I think like technically speaking, they can be considered negative because they're not positive. But I think like I enjoy feeling those things. I enjoy feeling like hopeless because yes. I'm like I'm feeling it. And it's like, oh, my God, like this is an amazing like wake up call, like looking out into space 
mm-hmm. and just seeing nothing and knowing that I know nothing about it, like that is fucking horrifying. But also, it's like energizing. It's yeah. like, oh my god, that's so amazing. And I think a lot of people shy away from that and like they don't they don't let themselves feel it. And I think that's very true for a lot of movies. Like someone watched I don't know, someone watched Midsummer the other day. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but Oh yeah. Yeah. Well they watched Midsummer the other day and they were just saying how they hated it because they were like, Well the bad guys win in it. Mm-hmm. They were like the bad guys win in the movie and I was like, What that's not that's not <laughs> even like that's not the thing that's not even like the framework of the movie like it's just this story mm-hmm. that's being told to you that like it's okay that it's dark it's okay that other cultures exist it's okay that like there are these weird themes i don't know i've just grown to appreciate all emotion the older i, I get and i, feel and I love exactly, that feeling of fear i feel exactly the same people at like people ask me like why do you enjoy like why watch it why watch horror like why watch <laughs> something that you're purposely being scared by why do you enjoy <laughs> that emotion and i reply with the exact same sentiment that you just had it's like well i, I enjoy the emotional spectrum i enjoy the right. experience of being scared and then to either building up courage or become or like uh, surviving it and coming out at the other end yeah you're alive a, yeah, having this fight or flight experience that you can see some depraved, inhumane shit or something that boggles the mind that you know is so phantasmagoric or dark and frightening that is existing at the at the peripheral of the human experience, and yet you survive it, and yet you come out on the other end. And if you have some kind of moral or theme that kind of touches upon that as well, um, even if it's an upbeat ending or a downbeat ending, I love the idea that a piece of art, a film, a story can change you, can change your outlook, can it, it could change how you look at the world, how you look at your peers, how you look at your family. And I think we need more stories that are not afraid to have hard edges. I, I and working, at, working in the film industry, um, there's certainly a tendency from a lot of um, either dis- distributors or producers or you know just people that want you to polish out the edges. They want you to kind of get it mm-hmm. to a place where it's marketable and where um, it feels, uh, for lack of a better word, um, uh, safe. Like it, it, fe- it doesn't feel like it really takes much, many risks. Um, yeah. Homogenized might be a better word for it, where it's, it's mm-hmm. just, it all kind of feels like a, the same a little bit. And it's, uh, they become kind of just passable films. You know, films that you sit down and you maybe you pay 20 bucks for at the movie theater really or cool. five bucks on demand. And you're like, okay, yeah, I, I sat through that. Like, that's two hours <laughs> and that was fun. But, you know, a day later, you haven't thought about the movie you haven't thought for about one it. No, second. You want the ones that just stick with you. Exactly. And I, as much as I, I think there are more films, more independent films being made now than ever. And yet the platform for a lot of these films just doesn't, these films, not all of them can kind of get in front of an audience the way that yeah. they should. It's and not what they want. It's you not. Know? Yeah. It's and not what's the, paid for. <laughs> The distribution options are, you know, infant are so complex now in terms of VOD yeah. or if it's uh, Hulu or Quibi or Amazon or theatrical or, or whatnot. So you certainly have options and you know things to see these movies out there. But I think it's becoming 
rarer and rarer to see films that take risks, films that have hard edges in a theatrical space or in a wide release. And that's why I'm so happy that films like um, like Ari's films, like you know, Hereditary and Midsommar mm-hmm. in particular, exist because they're films that you know certainly have hard edges and dark themes, and and yet they get supported by um, a fantastic distributor that takes them to thousands mm-hmm. of screens and they leave a residual impact upon pop culture. And as a filmmaker, I don't know what's better than that. Um, we were extremely lucky and fortunate with Mandy that Mandy found an audience that was extremely um, generous to us and promoted the film. Mm-hmm. And so far on Color Out of Space, it's been... Um, Similar, like it's been the film has certainly found an audience, people who appreciate um, and champion the film for a multitude of reasons. You know, one, you know, of course, it being Richard's first feature film in twenty years. Uh, right. It's uh, it's those a, people come out. Those people come out. Um, you have, uh, you know, it's a it's a Lovecraft adaptation, and those are rare, and especially ones that are, I think, not the kind of tout our own horn, but ones that are as good as Color Out of Space. <laughs> and of course it's a Nicolas Cage film, and you have all right. three of these things at the same time, and it kind of has no, this... No, it worked so well, man. It, uh, thank you. It, ha- it has this very unique, strange chemistry to it, and um, say which, I mean, there's you know, say what you will about Color Out of Space, but I think we can all, all the filmmakers attached to it can confidently say it's a film with hard edges. It's a film that is very confident in like what it is, and we did not make the film for a mass audience. We did not make the film for, to feel similar to other horror films. We wanted to be very confident in making something that was singular and unique and true to itself. No, there's nothing better than watching a movie and you're genuinely surprised. I think that's the best way to put it. Is like, so often I'll watch a movie and I'm not surprised ever. I'm like, yep, okay, that happened. Like, that beat, beat, beat. And like, watching Color Out of Space, I was constantly like, it was engaging. It was it was exciting. It was like, well, what's going to happen next? And it was, it didn't even like. Sometimes it felt like an '80s horror movie, like here and there, like with yeah. little tastes of it, really tastefully done. But then it was also just so off. Like I felt like it would stay in one scene for a long time, and you'd be in there, and you'd really be there, and you didn't leave the farm much, and it was just like mm-hmm. super, super engrossing. You never yeah, really. I'm, know. I'm so happy things like it's- that are being made. It's definitely not a predictable film in that sense. Yeah. Predict, yeah. Predictable in the sense like, okay, well, they're all going to die. Or like, this, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> we give you a promise to the audience that initially this alien organism is going to overtake all of them. But we're not going to tell you how right. they do it. That's <laughs> the experience of, of how does it go about taking them over? How does it go about ruining this farm and these people's lives? These people's lives? Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It's very, it definitely does have like these elements of like kind of an 80s movie and a 90s movie at times, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Like it has, like, it's kind of unusual that when you are in kind of the midst of like working on something, I think it can be really hard to kind of see your influences and kind of see um, the forefathers on some of this. And it wasn't until the movie was done that we were looking at like the entire finished product and we're like, oh, this is like, it's kind of like a John Carpenter ish, Stuart Gordon esque. But more importantly, yeah, this is. is a this is a fucking Richard Stanley movie. Like I, <laughs> this reminds me of Richard Stanley movies, and but just we haven't seen a Richard Stanley movie in decades because he right. <laughs> we haven't we haven't he hasn't done one. Um, 
and it certainly at times can feel like a film kind of like out of another era, you know, with the For sure. um, the body horror and the quips and the tone and um, the prosthetics. Like it, it certainly, if you were to put this film on VHS and dump it, you know, in a <laughs> some kind of a garage sale, it would not feel out of place like all no. these other classics. I would hope, knock on wood. But um, yeah, it definitely. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot of films being made like this right now. No, man, I'm happy it exists. I'm really happy it exists. Well, thank you for the chat. Yeah, of course. I appreciate have, it a lot. Do you have any other questions or anything else you're curious about? Um, I mean a lot, man, but <laughs> we've been we've been at it for an hour. We could always talk again soon. I'd love to. Yeah, sure. This was um, it's very rare that um, the editor gets to speak. Uh, we're very yeah, man. I, I try to represent everybody in in the cast: production design, art directors, makeup. Oh, Everyone really, who works on it has got a really important story to tell. So I really appreciate it. I'm very gracious for the opportunity, and so I'm gracious for the opportunity, man. I uh, I think I might talk to Colin again. Oh, cool! But then I'm gonna do a big, big mega episode with you, Katie, Stephen. So oh, awesome. I will definitely.